you've hit play on the screen companion, an eclectic mix of film and TV recommendations. Westerns, 1955's The Kentuckian, and 1978's Shoot the Sun Down. Max, what is The Kentuckian about? The Kentuckian is a story of a man who lived in a mountain with his boy, and he decided, you know what? There's still too much civilization out here. My neighbor, who lives five miles away from me, is too into my business. I need to go somewhere further away from people. And he decides he wants to go to Texas. You're right. There's already a lot of freedom in Kentucky in the 1820s. The main reason they were getting out of Dodge was because of the blood feud between his family, the Wakefields, and another family. He was very vocal about people being in his business, which makes sense now that I think about it, especially considering when the first logging town he went to, they were like, aren't you a part of that family with that feud? Everyone already knew. And he got shook down in that town. I could see why he didn't like Kentucky all that much. Did that even take place in Kentucky, that first little section, or was it some no-name town in the middle, like, in between? I believe it all takes place in Kentucky. Seriously? Wow. All right. In the 1820s, Kentucky, wasn't that a border state? I want to say it was. There wasn't a whole lot around. Why do you have to go down to Texas, which wasn't a state at the time? It was wild, untamed land, at least by Americans. I mean, it wasn't even really a territory, was it? It was just an area. It was owned by the Mexicans. Yeah, there you go. That's why it's wild. By some standards. Neither of us have seen either movie previous to this discussion. What were your initial thoughts when the credits rolled? They did a really good job casting the main character because I believed that he grew up in a mountain. I 100% can believe that. This guy doesn't know anything about the world, just based on the way he looked. Even before he opened his mouth, I could tell this guy, he lives in a tree. He sleeps under the stars. He looks rugged enough that he looked like a man's man. Wearing that buckskin. Also, he had that cap that reminded me of the end of an Elmer's glue bottle. Yeah, wasn't his son wearing the same thing too? They were almost like twinsies. <laughs> yeah, well, they share the same name, Big Eli and Little Eli. What struck me the most, how there wasn't a single duel, and it showed me westerns can be a lot more than six-shooters and saloons. It's like the difference between Zack Snyder superhero movies and then watching Bruce Willis in Unbreakable. You mean it doesn't have to be about spandex and capes? The whole time I was sitting here watching, thinking to myself, where are the revolvers? Where are the horses? Where's the big desert landscape? There's too many trees. There's too much water. There's no rattlesnake anywhere. What's going on? Burt Lancaster, doesn't he only fight with his hands in the whole movie? Yes, he doesn't even use a knife. The only other scene I can remember any weapons was near the very end where there were a few guns involved. But for the most part, he fought with his bare hands. It took six men to put him in that jail cell in the very opening scene. I guess he just didn't appreciate the injustice of being roused by the townies. I need you to pull your dog off of my dog. Why? He didn't start it. Except for that part, he comes off as a real pacifist, would you say? He minds his own business. He knows what he's about. 
Is there anything else that stood out to you about Lancaster versus other Western heroes? He wasn't in it to do the town well. He wasn't there trying to save anyone. He was a man on a mission. Just be happy. Hopefully by going to Texas. I guess at some point his motivation changed a little bit, but even at the end of it all, he was like, nah, it's time to be a man. Let's pack up. Let's finish what we started. And while he wasn't getting into people's business, except for the barmaid, (laughs) he did have a humility and humanity that went against the stoic badass gunslinger archetype. And it's because he's not that. He's a single dad and pioneer. That was interesting depiction. Probably a better way to describe this type of film. It was more about pioneering. It was more about the frontier than it was about justice and going to the West to make it big or make a name for itself. He just wanted somewhere to be nice and peaceful and quiet. Doing a little research for the movie, I saw some reviewers describe it as an Eastern instead of a Western. (laughs) That's interesting. Kentucky isn't that far West. However, for the time period, it was the western part of the country. And from my perspective, coming from New England, that's west of me. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot what it was. There's a reason why they call the middle of the U.S. the Midwest. And it had something to do with borders and what was tamed and untamed. That's why they called it the Wild West. And the Midwest was in the middle of civilization. Did it bother you at all that it was light on action? Or do you feel like the drama made up for that? I feel like the drama helped, but if you're looking for like a true spaghetti western, this isn't it. This is not corrupt sheriff, the mayor's trying to steal everyone's homes. There's nothing like that in this kind of story. It is a feel-good story, though, in the sense of like watching characters develop. You learn about them, you watch them grow, and there is a bit of an ending where you're like, oh, good for them. And how well do you feel the movie portrays minorities and women? Okay, so the woman aspect, I feel like the barmaid was too strong of a female character for the time period. I don't think things would have gone down like that. Although I do appreciate her, I do feel she was a better character overall. Better than the school teacher? I thought about that. School teacher? No. She's not worth it. Because she's the other woman in this love triangle with Big Eli. Something about her is like, no, you'd sell me out, wouldn't you? <laughs> I can't trust you. The barmaid, she broke me out of jail. She's been there trying to help me support the boy. She's better for me. The school teacher, what she do? Show up, start singing a pretty song, and show me how to spell the word muscle? <laughs> the main issue of the movie, the Wakefields are going down to Texas, and then they get stuck in a town, and the barmaid, Hannah, she represents going all the way down to Texas, and the school teacher represents civilization and sticking around town, and that creates friction between the father and son. How do you feel about the central question of being on the fringe, being free, versus the trappings of society and its structure? It's very relatable. It made me think a lot about civilization. Like, you know what? Maybe I can just sell everything, move to Montana, and just be happy with what I have. I don't need more. I have enough. And I felt like I really related to that character. I want my own little piece of land away from everyone. No taxes, no government, (laughs) no neighbors 50 miles away from me. It'll be nice. 
I don't mind it as a concept, but I don't like it in the context of this movie and the position the movie took. It comes off like it wants me to want the Wakefields to go to Texas, but they had a good setup in town. The elder Eli has a good job in tobacco, he has a fiancé and the school teacher, and the townspeople respect him at a certain point. He's part of the community, but little Eli bemoans, Pa, you said we were going to Texas. Wah! You're gonna make me into a man. I like the father-son moments, but every time the kid complained, I wish Burt Lancaster would cuff him. <laughs> that was the other thing about this movie that kind of weirded me out. This was not a town. This was like, what is this? A tobacco hotspot, and that's it. There's like maybe three buildings, one of them being the post office, the other one being a tobacco shop, and the third one maybe being like a saloon. This was not civilization. This was just out in the middle of the boonies still. And that was enough to tame this wild beast of a man? <laughs> I think it was civilized enough. I think once you have a schoolhouse, you've become civilized. Once there's children, it becomes a town. That's the rule. What do you think of the father-son relationship at the heart of the movie? I was watching the whole time thinking, oh yeah, that kid's trying to blow that horn. This is going to be a concept that sticks to the end, isn't it? And as soon as he was told, go out into the woods and just huck it and forget about Texas, I knew he's going to blow it. He's going to do the thing. <laughs> and there he goes. He did it. That wasn't so satisfying. However, immediately after that, when you have the dog that represents freedom <laughs> and he's tied to a post. And I was like, don't do it. Don't do it. And they did it, but it turns out I wanted it, which is the dog gets away from the post, breaks the string, and then he goes to join the boy, which, if memory serves, you don't even get to see the moment boy and dog are reunited. Doesn't it just cut to them walking back together? They're walking out of the woods, all three of them together. They go find the barmaid, and they're like, all right, pack up your stuff. We're off to finish our journey. Yeah, I felt cheated. It's like, I want to see that lassie moment where the boy's crying and he gets down and the dog licks his face. You know, come on. <laughs> you don't even see the boy actually blow the horn. They cut away from that because, I'll be honest, I recall a time when I tried to blow on a horn like that and my eight-year-old lungs couldn't do it. I know for a fact that boy was not man enough to do it yet. It's a pretty low bar for Burt Lancaster to go, oh my god, he's a man now because he blew a stupid horn. He's got hair on his chest. I don't know if I should be serving you this whiskey, boy. No, no, sir. I'm a man now. I blew a horn. So what was your favorite stunt? The last fight scene, where the whole town's watching the Kentuckian fight the mayor of the town. Because I'm just watching these stunts like, all right, you guys are trying to take it easy, but you're still trying to make it look realistic. It looks kind of funky. But hey, you almost split your head on that log, so you know what? Maybe you should take it easy, old man. The bullwhip made that scene fun, but the choreography on Big Eli's end, he just constantly dives. That's all he knew how to do, just dive and roll. <laughs> and maybe take a whipping every now and then. Now, was the bad guy there Walter Matthau? I thought he just owned the saloon. Was he actually the mayor as well? It seemed like he was the mayor. It seemed like he was pretty big and important. For all we know, maybe just owning the saloon makes you the mayor. It would go along with all the other depictions of authority in the movie where they're evil and corrupt. 
I mean, he was wearing a black outfit too, right? Yeah. That's how I know he's a bad guy. Do you agree with our picks? Have a suggestion or scathing critique? Email the show via the screen companion at gmail.com. Tell us if we gave you a good recommendation and let us know who your favorite guests are. Like us and subscribe on YouTube, Podbean, Amazon Music, Spotify, and more. Thank you around the world for listening. So often we mention period movies and how their mysteries would be undercut by modern tech like computers, smartphones. Well, this movie showed me how much suspense we've lost by having rifles that carry more than one round at a time. (laughs) It was thrilling and comedic at the same time, watching a bad guy miss Lancaster, and then he runs across an 80-foot pond and tackles the shooter before the muzzleloader can fire again. A tense moment like that can't exist with today's firearms, and cinema's worse for it. It only would have been better if he threw a rock at him at some point. That would have been fun, too. I have a feeling Big Eli had a good arm on him. (laughs) At least they didn't have him take out a slingshot, considering he wouldn't pick up a gun the whole movie. The only time he held a gun was in the very beginning, right? When he went into the first little town? That was it? Yeah, and then they disarmed him and threw him in jail. (laughs) What do you think was the best dramatic moment? Maybe the part when they're getting set up in the cabin before all that happens. You see them take the boy hostage, you see them take the barmaid hostage, and you see the mayor just having a guffy like, you know what, maybe this is a little messed up, maybe I shouldn't have gone this far. But is that Walter Matthau's conscience, or is he just spineless? He's probably more spineless, because he didn't want to do anything with it. He was like, I delivered, you don't need me for this part anymore, and they're like, no, 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 we're going to see you through this. You're going to do this, you're going to shoot that other guy. That was him being spineless, he didn't want to get blood on his hands. He wanted to get even. He wanted to humiliate the guy. He didn't want to kill nobody himself. Did you ever get a sense why Walter Matthau's character hated the Wakefield so much? He probably saw them as competition. Oh, these guys are so big. They're starting to build a name for themselves. Maybe they'll run me out of town if this keeps up. I want to stay in control of this town. This is my city. That's my schoolhouse. That makes more sense later in the movie, but... From the very beginning, when they meet, he's a total prick. I think that's just because he was looking down on him for being a dum-dum. This guy can't even read. Freshwater oysters? Those pearls are useless. But let's play along. Let's make him think they're something for fun. I think the best dramatic moment is when Hannah tells the Wakefields she went back to indentured servitude in order to pay for their going down to Texas. Big Eli won't accept the money. Making sporty in the town. Them that don't stand me hard to you. You didn't laugh that, don't kill a man. Just give me time. If the laughing don't kill you, the lingering will. Maybe so and maybe not. But you give that money back here. It's on paper. Leave it like. Get the paper then. Eli, some are born to stand still. And some are born to run. I'm through with running. Eli, you're playing the fool. Let me be my own kind of fool then. Lots of great exchanges and antebellum slang. What's your biggest criticism for the Kentuckian? I don't know. For me, at some point, it kind of felt like it dragged on a bit. There was a lot of lulls, a lot of like setup, which I understand why they did it for the time, because that's how you told stories. 
again, I think this goes back to just me being accustomed to movies from today where there's just something always going on. Yeah, you do need a little bit of buildup. You do need something to move the story along. But sometimes I felt like it just took too long. Yeah, it did, but it shows how much mileage you can get out of having characters that you like. I liked the main pair, the father-son, and if I didn't like them as much, then I think the movie would have felt longer than it was. But there were some scenes that were added in that I don't know if they were necessary. Getting the letter from President Monroe, was that really necessary? Did it add anything to this guy? Yeah, you're right. They could have done without that. In the saloon, making fun of him for the oyster and the pearl. I liked that because... How often in a Western do you get to see the hero get belittled like that? And then he comes off as a better character because, like he tells his son, just get over it. Okay, they had a laugh. I was dumb. Move on. My biggest criticism for the Kentuckian would be Walter Matthau felt like he was the main antagonist, but you wouldn't know it from the way he leaves the movie. What an anticlimactic death. It was kind of weird. Going back to the whole blood feud thing, the whole time watching that movie, just thinking to myself, all right, so was that just a motivator to keep the story going? Was that it? Get them out of that little area, Kentucky, and move on? I didn't expect them to make a comeback at the very end of the film. That did kind of catch me off guard, and I was kind of hoping there would be something more with Walter Matthau. That was his character's name, Bodine. I was hoping for something a bit more, and I was hoping it wasn't going to end at just the wagon fight. Is that what we're going to call it? The wagon fight with the bullwhip and his meat hands duking it out? (laughs) That's an appropriate nickname for it. Yeah, there was a wagon involved. I was hoping for something a bit more like he would go into a drunken rage and maybe pull out a revolver and that's when Final Showdown would actually happen and not not the little fireside wagon fight. I did as little research on these movies before we watched them. All I was trying to figure out was... Are they Westerns? And also, I've been watching more Burt Lancaster, so that's why the Kentuckian got on my radar. And then Shoot the Sun Down, being a Christopher Walken movie where he doesn't go full Walken, that was interesting too. So I went into the Kentuckian with very few notions of what was going to happen in the movie. Were you expecting it to be more of a Grand Journey type of movie like I was? I was definitely expecting different scenery. Yeah, you start off in the woods and a little logging town. And then from there, I was expecting, okay, they're going to go out to like Utah or somewhere deserty. I was expecting to see cactus or cattle farm at some point. And I didn't get that. All I got was just woods and trees everywhere. For both of these movies, the TSC Western scorecard, my dad helped me develop because he's way more into Westerns than I will ever be. On a scale of 0 to 3, and you just tell me where you think this movie ranked. Alright. Self-sufficient, confident main character. Oh, I'm going to give this guy a 3. Heck yeah, he was manly without being overtly manly. He didn't scowl, ever. You know he can survive out in the woods. You know he can make it, no matter what. I don't even know why he needs money for. He can just live in the outskirts of town and find a way. In that moment in the last act where it looks like the boy's gonna go off on his own, at first I thought, well, he's too young, he's not gonna make it, but then I thought, eh, his dad probably taught him a few things, he might be able to do it. 
How about the love interest? Hold on. There's somebody knocking. <laughs> what the? Jesus. Pa, I want to blow the horn. <laughs> it actually might be the boy. All right. I think he stopped. All right. So where were we? <laughs> All right, love interest. Love interest. <laughs> All right, so love interest. Um, are we basing it off of personal preference or off of realism? Personal preference. I'll give her a two because she was pretty good for like being a strong character, being what you wanted a partner, but at the same time, she had moments of weakness where she got emotional, and I just can't 100% get behind that. I thought she was a good love interest, but I'm going to go a little lower and say one. Because she's just not in the movie that much, except for a few pivotal moments. How about in terms of beautiful nature imagery, a.k.a. landscape porn? Definitely going to give that a two. Because again, I'm disappointed there wasn't really much western desert scenery. But I do like trees. Trees are cool. The fact that they actually had them going through streams. They were looking over mountainsides. There's a whole nature walk scene that took like five minutes of the intro. This is wilderness. This is outdoorsy. Sure. This is untamed. But it felt like as far as landscape porn, it went downhill from the opening. I don't really think there was a moment for me where I was like, wow, look at this majestic shot. So I'm going to go zero. How about frontier justice? There weren't that many lawmen to begin with. There was one in the very beginning who was slightly corrupt, which is what I would expect from a Western. Was there even a lawman in the second town? I don't think so. No. There weren't really any kind of crimes or anything that really happened. There wasn't really much of a need for justice for the most part. It seemed more like karma than anything else at this point. But there was a blood feud in the background. Yeah, which we have no context for. We don't know who's in the right or who's in the wrong, so... Maybe they don't either. So I guess that is closer to frontier justice. I'll give it a two. Except for the very beginning with that crooked lawman. Nobody's going like, oh, I wonder what the law is going to say about this. Even that scene where little Eli's going to school for the first time and the kids are making fun of him over the muscle pearl. His solution as they're taunting him is to just punch the lead kid. <laughs> oh, what a different time the 50s and the 1820s were. I thought it was great when the school teacher's talking to big Eli about it. And they're talking about the kid's problems at school and that he has a shiner. And she says... Oh, you'd be so proud how he dealt with it. You mean by beating ass? <laughs> that to me is, at least on a school bully level, that's frontier justice. He didn't go immediately to the teacher. He socked the other kid. Yeah, he did try to solve his own problems. Definitely three. And the last part of the TSC Western scorecard, what number would you give the Kentuckian clear good versus evil? Closer to a two because... Do we really know who's good or evil, like in that blood feud? I mean, we can easily tell, oh, these guys are being jerks to the frontiersmen, to the Kentuckian, because he's a dum-dum. He doesn't know anything. So yeah, that's that does seem a little scummy. But for all we know, he or his family might have killed some of feuding family from the other guys just because they looked at them funny, which is kind of messed up. So we have no context for who's actually good or evil from his little side of the story. I agree with you, and it was a little difficult for me to come up with my own answer. But at the end of the day, I was like, well, how can you side against Burt Lancaster? 
he's so good as a guy and a father. If he's that good, then automatically anybody against him is pure evil. <laughs> Do they ever explain why he's a single dad? No, except you figure his wife probably died. She probably got taken out by consumption or something. Or maybe he got tired of her never able to blow that horn, and he left her. She didn't skin the rabbit correctly. <laughs> yeah, didn't use the proper uh, thickness of thatch on the hut roof. <laughs> Before I move on to the next movie, I have to ask you, and don't let real life sway your answer. Okay. As I'm positive, she doesn't listen to TSC anyway. Do you choose the barmaid or the teacher? <sighs> I thought the teacher was looking kind of fine for a hot second. I don't know. Maybe I stick to the barmaid. Honestly, I think the barmaid is probably a better way to go. Looks are one thing, but if you're capable, it's like, oh, maybe you can actually save me. I want to be saved every now and then. <laughs> you mean you just like a lady that's willing to turn herself into a slave to buy you dinner? Hey, if she's willing to go down with me like that, then yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Ride or die. Moving on to Shoot the Sun Down. This stars Christopher Walken as army deserter Mr. Rainbow, which I'm going to assume is a made-up name because he doesn't want people knowing his real last name because he is a deserter. I don't know. I hope so. Otherwise, that's a stupid name. A conscientious objector to the Indian Wars. At a time when the Southwest is still under Mexican rule and tension is high between them, the tribes, and American prospectors, Rainbow will cross paths with an English girl needing help on the way to Santa Fe. Max, what was your first feeling when the end credits rolled? That's how it ends, just like that? You know what, I'm okay with this ending. This is fine. <laughs> Everybody got what they had coming. <laughs> Actually, my biggest issue was the whole time I was just trying to figure out, wait, okay, I saw him doing this one thing with a plant, and I guess allegedly that went to the water that these people were drinking. What was that? Because I think I heard them call it like loco weed or something. I think that's what I heard too. It was just something poisonous. You sure it wasn't just like some anti-marijuana campaign? They're like, oh, these people were killed by the weed. <laughs> that would be an interesting side effect of marijuana. But this is the late 70s. People were hip to it by then. Yeah, I guess this isn't quite reefer madness misinformation, but okay. Rewinding back to the very beginning, though, what did you think of the movie trailer voice narration over storyboard art? In 1836, virtually all of the Southwest was part of the Mexican Empire. American adventurers and frontiersmen forged a new path of exploration. Their gateway, Santa Fe. The old myths of Montezuma's golden wheel fanned the fires of new discoveries, and with it, a deadly fever for gold. Into this cauldron of greed, distrust, and violence also came other kinds of men, men of action, who could not be bought or intimidated. It kind of reminded me of Tombstone, where I think they did something very similar for the very beginning and the very end. And I appreciate the context that it sets up for the story. You don't need to have a bunch of people doing a bunch of things to just show, okay, this is how things are going down. You just give you a quick summary of like, all right, people are messed up. This is what they're doing. 
it's pretty cray cray out here. And then they show it to you still. It's like, oh, yeah, that is pretty nuts. It's more forgivable for period movies to have narration because, come on, public school systems today, kids don't know their history. I barely know the history. (laughs) I'm going to tell you right now, it's gotten worse. They really don't know. (laughs) Well, yes, because our generation was the greatest generation. (laughs) It's all downhill after us. (laughs) Every generation. It felt like a necessity of a smaller budget. They made the storyboards, and then they realized they didn't have the money to shoot those scenes. So they figured, screw it, I guess we'll just put those placeholders on screen. Can you really show a man being scalped? They could have. Did they show somebody getting scalped? I guess one of them did at one point. He wasn't in the center of the frame being scalped, but yeah, they showed the scalp hunter with a scalp. He did it off camera, that's right, like barely out of the scene. Yeah, which makes it okay. (laughs) What to you stands out about Christopher Walken in this movie? It was not the Walken I was used to at all. I was expecting something a bit more flamboyant at times, a bit more stagey. No, this was a guy starting off as an actor from the way it looked. He was doing his best to play the role. And I think he did a good job doing what he was doing. He's so soft-spoken. If he wasn't an expert knife thrower, I think it'd be easy to whoop him in a fight. Which is weird, because he's supposed to be like an expert gunslinger, isn't he? Man, just in that opening part where the banditos try to take his horse, I think he makes 100% of those shots. He's not looking down the barrel, he just does it from the hip. He's done this before, he knows what he's doing. And he's laconic like Clint Eastwood, but that's where the similarities end. I liked him, though. This movie came out the same year as The Deer Hunter... The start of a great run that lasted into the 80s with stuff like A View to a Kill and The Dead Zone. I don't think he goes full walk-in until probably Batman Begins in 92. This film came out well after the golden age of westerns. How does it compare to The Kentuckian? This one's definitely more of a western. It definitely feels western-y because it takes place in the west, not the midwest. I definitely got that vibe of it's dry, it's unforgiving. There's death around every corner, behind every rock. Nothing is sacred, nothing is safe. I got that feeling just from the scenery and from the few character interactions we had like within the first five minutes. The first five minutes are so western-y. It made me think, what happens to any long-lived popular genre? Eventually, people are going to want to challenge the conventions. Even though the very beginning feels so western, I think the rest of the movie deconstructs them. Sure, you get a rattlesnake, banditos, and Indians in the first five minutes, but that's all a bait and switch because the rest of the flick turns into a love triangle between Rainbow, Margot Kidder, and the Scottish boat captain slash treasure hunter. And by the end, the hero throws down his gun and uses knives instead. There isn't a happy ending with the girl. And the biggest win is that he saves a group of Indians that were being death marched across the desert. Don't get me wrong, that's a good thing, but it wouldn't be the cap to an older Western. I remember Stagecoach, starring John Wayne from 1939. I saw that with my dad on his last visit. The climax of that movie is fending off an Indian horde and killing dozens of them. So I appreciate the change of pace, but I also see why the conventions of Westerns are there. It's definitely a tad more satisfying in something like The Kentuckian. 
even if that one isn't as complex as the politics and treachery in Shoot the Sundown. So how well do you think the movie portrays minorities and women? I was looking at it, and that's one thing I noticed in the credits. I was like, all right, how many of these Indians were actually Indians? And I think they actually all were Indians, not just looking the part. Now, I can already tell you one of them definitely wasn't. Oh, no. I guess I didn't look at the credits closely enough. But some of them definitely had Indian names, like Littlefoot or something like that. So they actually might have been portrayed fairly well and not just been some dark-skinned Italians. Names can be made up. Oh, uh, don't. No. Do you remember the famous case of that woman that showed up to accept the Academy Award for Marlon Brando? And she used it as a platform to talk about Native American rights. Yeah, yeah, I remember that that whole scandal thing. It's come out that she wasn't Native American. Not a drop. <laughs> I've been lied to! Well, it just goes to show people pretend to be other races all the time. Burn it all down, Frank. We gotta start over. I'm there with you, buddy. You charge through the door first. I'm right there behind you. <laughs> <laughs> Especially compared to the first movie, there are a lot of Mexicans and Indians in this movie. That was pretty cool. It was like its own little uh, Lord of the Rings. You know, you got all these different groups represented. At least the Mexicans seem like they were portrayed correctly. So there's that. That's cool. As for women, there was like, what, three women maybe in total in this movie? Yeah, there wasn't a lot of female activity. But no nudity, no gratuitous nudity. We got close, though. What's her name? Um... The indentured servant. Lois Lane. Is that what we call her? Lois Lane? Is that who she is? She played Lois Lane in the first Superman movie. Considering the Federales are corrupt, like everybody else, just about everybody else in the movie is, but I did like that exchange between Mr. Rainbow and the guy that owned the stable. How he was a Mexican dude, but Nothing felt stereotypical about him. He just felt like a guy, a business owner. He was just doing his job. I got to charge high because they're ripping me off too. So I got to pass the buck on to you. I don't want to do this. My prices are outrageous, not by choice. Considering you've grown up with plenty of Mexican culture, what effect do you think it has on your viewing of historical films that feature them prominently? I mean, I do love to see if it's accurate. For this story, it's actually very accurate. <laughs> Corruption's very real. My mom, when she was growing up in Mexico, when she finished high school, she actually got a clerical job working for the city. You know, small government kind of job. Early on, she was like, I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to do my job and treat everyone fairly. At one point, people were like, hey, I can give you this bag of McDonald's or Burger King or whatever. I can give you this food. If you can push my paperwork through a little bit faster than everyone else, make me jump the line, basically. And at first she was like, I am not going to take these bribes. I will do my job fairly. Before she left, when she got paperwork and they're like, they didn't give me a burger. To the back of the line you go. I don't want to help you anymore. <laughs> the government corrupted her without trying. <laughs> Where's my cheesy gordita, damn it. <laughs> she didn't need the food. She was just more outraged by the fact that it wasn't there. <laughs> it was like a loss of respect. Basically. That feels similar to when I was working at some strip clubs. And you realize in the service industry, and your mom provided a service, 
sometimes, let's say the dancers have had a terrible night, but the respectful ones will still give you a little tip. And it's like nothing because they had a terrible night. But it's the idea that it's the token gesture. That always meant a lot to me when some of the dancers would do that because it's a show of respect. So I get what your mom was thinking. It's like, I don't need it. I don't want it. But you should still offer it to me. (laughs) (laughs) Usually these movies, I ask, what was your favorite stunt? But I don't even know if there was a great stunt. Can you think of one? There was a part where we see the Indian cheating those other guys out of their clothes with a load of dice. Which he called magic. Yeah. Magic! As he walks away. I cheated, but I'm in the right here. Yes, they're loaded. But to him, that's a form of magic. So it's valid. Water falls from the sky. Magic. Who are we to judge and say he's wrong? That was a handsome dude. I could see him in a rock band. You know, he was magical. (laughs) Is he John Redcorn to you? (laughs) Yes, he is. Nice pull. The only stunt I could think of is maybe that one part when they're getting the cannon set up and they're about to fire it. There was a little bit of stunt work in that. That's pretty badass. I can't think of many westerns or other movies where the bad guys literally carry around a mini howitzer. It's kind of where it's like, wait, you're going out here to go look for this magical golden wheel and you're bringing a cannon along? If they would just leave the cannon behind, they would have the room for the wheel. You mean to tell me you brought a cannon all the way out and now you're dragging the cannon back the way you came? So they find a wheel that I guess is solid gold. How much do you think that wheel weighed? I'm going to tell you right now, if it was made out of solid gold, they wouldn't have used ropes like that to bring it down. Even if it was just a veneer, how much do you think that in the movie was supposed to weigh? Maybe about as much as a car, if not twice as much. Oh, you mean if the whole thing was made of gold? Yeah. Even if it was a veneer, it still has weighed a lot. No, you're still not going to move it through normal means. You're probably better off either breaking it into small pieces or just pushing it out and hoping that it breaks into smaller pieces you can carry. They mention how walking around with a giant golden wheel, that's way too much heat. If I discovered that thing out in the desert, I just would have put a stick down to mark where it is and figure out some better way to take it home. (laughs) Instead of double-crossing your Indian friends and making them lug it around in the desert. (laughs) I fell for those guys so much. Like those white devils. Hey, thanks for your help for defeating your enemies and everything. Sorry about this, but um, put this rope around your wrists and now walk me through this desert with no shade and no water. Good luck. And that gets to what I think is the best performance in this movie, which is that scalp hunter. What a piece of crap. And that actor, he never went too far with the acting, but everything he did was terribly scummy. There's a moment where he's a guest in a wigwam with some tribal women, and he smiles and says to another guy, I could get $150 for her scalp in Tucson. What a bastard. He's all about business. That's what they mentioned too. It's like, oh yeah, no, you're a great businessman. You know what you want. You know what you're doing. But yeah, you cannot trust him for a second. Do you think there's any chance when he tries to make a deal with Rainbow to screw over the boat captain? Do you think there's any chance he would have stuck to that agreement? No, not for a second. 
Yeah, I want to say that's part of the reason Mr. Rainbow didn't take the deal. Like, he knew immediately. <laughs> so, Max, what were your biggest problems with this picture? It was a little hard to actually stay focused the whole time. I don't know. It's something about these older films that I guess I'm just having a hard time just staying focused with them. It seems to be like a common complaint I've had so far. Also, another thing that happened to me was, I guess, the way things bounced around between the three characters before you met all of them. I actually did have a hard time keeping up with who's who and what's going on every now and then. Yeah, that felt a little sloppy. I feel like they could have introduced the characters in a more efficient manner, maybe get them together sooner. Also, how they just all end up in that deserted town in the middle of the movie. The scalp hunter and the boat captain. When Mr. Rainbow shows up, they're treasure hunting. They don't want people hanging around. And Mr. Rainbow, they met him in town, but he's basically a stranger. Why they didn't immediately shoot his ass, I don't know. There's another thing about Mr. Rainbow that you mentioned earlier, how you're pretty sure that's not his real name. Didn't the lady at one point grab his knife and read a description on it? Didn't it have an actual name on there? Oh, well, yeah, it was given to him by Captain Jefferson Davis. Oh. I hope that name rings a bell with you. I know who that be. Did you go to public school? Yeah. I did too. We're ahead of the curve because we both caught it. <laughs> Yay. My biggest gripe, I hated the score. It either felt generic, underwhelming, or distracting. It was in contravention of how the music should enhance what's on screen. I also wish there was more dialogue. Mr. Rainbow is ostensibly the lead but he doesn't interact much with any of the other three main characters. Was he really the lead? I don't think any of them should have been the lead. I don't think there was anything indicating this is the person you're supposed to be rooting for. The whole time it felt like, oh no, these are just three strangers that met, and then they go do a thing. He gets screwed over by the other two. But there's nothing that really points you to say that this is the man you're supposed to be rooting for the whole time, in my opinion, at least up until you get to that point where he gets screwed over. And that's more because you just want him to get even with them. Wait a second. Let me present the case on behalf of this film, Max, to you and the listeners. Mr. Rainbow, he's played by the handsome Christopher Walken. He was a tall drink of water back then. And also, his backstory is that he objected to massacring Indians. So that makes him pretty cool, especially, I would say, by modern standards. And then on top of that, at a certain point, he wants to free, just like from the Kentuckian, he wants to free a woman from servitude. Okay, I'll give you that. Yeah, he does have some good qualities to him. But the amount of screen time he gets and how Lily actually follow him the whole time, and how it's jumping around between characters, didn't really seem like I was supposed to stick with him the whole time. It didn't seem like I was supposed to be necessarily rooting for him. How about the end where he's stopping a genocide? Because you know the scalp hunter isn't going to let those Indians live once they get the wheel to Santa Fe. Didn't he also commit an genocide? You mean by killing those Mexicans with the tainted water? Yeah. He killed a lot of people to save a lot of people. But I mean, at the end of but it... those guys were corrupt. Also, yes. <laughs> See, so he took out the bad guys. Come on. I killed 50 bad guys, but I saved 50 good guys. You still killed 50 people, though. At the end of the day. Uh, life balances out. <laughs> <laughs> Peter will understand at the pearly gates. <laughs> it's like, you know what? 
Yeah, that's fine. Those Mexicans were wanting way too much money. You're right. That was a bad deal. Go on through. But I agree. He gets about the same amount of screen time. So in that way, it feels like an ensemble. But I don't know how anybody can watch the movie and not throw in with Mr. Rainbow. He's certainly less scuzzy than the rest of them. Even the chambermaid slash Margot Kidder. She comes off as unsavory in parts. She tried to seduce him to kill the boat captain, didn't she? Yeah. Here's another gripe I have, too, before I forget. The boat captain. He was wearing his boat uniform the whole time. Who does that? Why? He lost his boat a long time ago. He should have gotten new duds by that point. He shouldn't have been wearing what he was wearing. He only kept it on just so he can claim the title of boat captain. But he's a captain to no boat at that point. He wasn't a rich guy. Maybe he didn't want to throw the clothes away. But how cheap do you have to be? I mean, those clothing cannot be good for traveling through the desert. There could have been better clothing at that point. He could have sold his clothing or swapped them out for other clothing that would have been better for the environment. Ooh, yeah, that was probably a wool jacket. That actor must have been sweating. Nobody was having a good time. <laughs> so the TSC Western scorecard for Shoot the Sun Down. Max, from zero to three. How do you feel about there being a self-sufficient, confident main character in Christopher Walken? I'll give him a two because he was pretty confident. I don't think he was completely self-sufficient. He had to be rescued a few times. He would not survive on the desert by himself. He had to make friends along the way to actually bail him out. Yeah, I would say two as well. Although that switch in him at the end when he just goes full-on commando, like a freaking desert fox... <laughs> That felt wild. Like, I wouldn't have expected that from him an hour earlier in the movie. You learned how to do this in the army? Maybe he was one of the first special forces. It all makes sense now. What number would you give the love interest? He was definitely interested in her. She was playing him pretty good, so I'll give her a three. She did her job well. Basically said to her early on, I'll start believing you when you stop bullshitting me. And it seems like she did get genuine with him at a certain point. It's that weird dynamic. It's like a cat and mouse kind of game from the way it was. She was definitely into him. He was kind of into her. He didn't trust her because she wasn't straight up with him about all the details from the very get-go. Also, she wanted him to kill a dude. You can't really trust a woman like that. She's crazy, but she's also hot. So there's that one graph where the more crazy, the better it is. I'd give her a two. She didn't have a ton to do, but I did care what the resolution of that was going to be. How about landscape porn? It definitely met the requirements of a Western where it was just death everywhere. Give it a three. I'm going to give it a one because they did have a lot of big nature shots. These moments where you have this little tiny rider on horseback in the frame and the rest of it is nature. But, man, sand is boring. But it is western. It is untamed wilderness. Maybe I didn't catch it, but at any point before it's revealed, do they mention that it's getting close to winter? No. It just feels like all of a sudden there's snow on the ground, which I believe, but it just felt like it came out of nowhere in terms of the story. I will 100% believe that happens all the time. I've been in the desert long enough to tell you that it can get cold as balls and you can die from exposure. The fact that there was a little bit of snow out in the ground, 
I did find it to be a little weird. I was also willing to find it as acceptable. It felt more like maybe they had scheduled it for the summer and fall, but then they ran too long and it started going into winter, and they added one or two lines to acknowledge there was snow on the ground, and they just proceeded. How about Frontier Justice? I'll give it a three. Me too. Because it did definitely happen. There was definitely some Frontier Justice out there, the Indians especially, doling it out. And how about pure good versus evil? Yeah, you could definitely tell who was evil. And I guess character building tells you that there are some good in some of these people. And I wouldn't really say that anyone teetered on that line, so I'm going to give it a three. It's my same reasoning as the Kentuckian, but from the other way, where I started with the scalp hunter, and he's charming, but he's also a huge piece of crap. So I was like, okay, if he's definitely evil, have we seen Christopher Walken in the movie do anything that makes him not look squeaky clean, except for the fact that he deserted the military. In some people's eyes, that's unforgivable. But besides that, he seemed like a pretty good dude. He did get into other people's business when he didn't have to. Hey, um, when Mr. Rainbow is at the bar and the Indian guy that talks English is uh, rolling bones with people, gambling, and Rainbow saves the Indian guy... At first, I was like, why would he help this guy? And then later, I thought, with his background and not wanting to kill Indian folk, he definitely must have killed some. So maybe for him, it was trying to make up for some of that bloodshed? I don't know about that. Why do you think he helped him? That's what I've been trying to figure out for a while. Maybe he knew what tribe he was from. and He knew, oh, these are friendly Indians. Yeah, they're a little scummy. Maybe they saved me of the past or something like that. That might be his mentality, just paying it forward, or maybe he knew people from that tribe and he was like, I gotta help this guy out. After these two movies and the first Westerns podcast you were on, do you like the genre more or less than before? That's actually a bit of a mix, because I feel like the modern ones were really Western in a different way. Modern Western, I guess, would probably be a better way of calling it, where you kind of had an idea of what you were getting when you walk into it. And you don't leave unsatisfied. With these older ones, I feel like it's just a genre still trying to be hashed out, being explored. I want to give them a chance. I want to say they were good for Westerns. But in my mind, I still have the modern interpretation sticking to me. So no, I'm going to say these were not as good of Westerns as they should have been. Especially Kentuckian. What was the biggest thing missing from that? Oh, it's that it wasn't out West enough, right? Not West enough. No six shooters. That was mainly it. There was no showdown. An actual quick draw showdown. Did they have revolvers in the 1820s? They started to, but they were janky revolvers back in the time. Because you remember in Shoot the Sun Down, when the Scalp Hunter and Mr. Rainbow first meet, Scalp Hunter comments on the fact that Rainbow has a repeater, like it's new technology. It was fairly new, but the problem is because the bullets were so small, they weren't seen as being that powerful. If I remember right, sidearms at that point in time were considered to be just on the same level as like a knife. You can hurt somebody with it, but you're not going to kill them with it. It's good for just keeping people in check. Not like today's modern stuff where, oh yeah, no, that'll kill somebody. I only know this because I've been doing a whole lot of research into guns lately. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 
I've come to recognize that I can enjoy westerns, but it's crystal clear that none of the accoutrements appeal to me. Gunslinging, horse riding, frontier living, they don't move the needle one bit as far as my enjoyment. It's like getting into a slasher movie, but the deaths are the least favorite part. Also, between this and getting into Little House on the Prairie recently, <laughs> I can firmly say that the period of westward expansion is one of my least favorite American history topics. Give me the Roaring Twenties. I'm not into an era before indoor plumbing. <laughs> not counting the Civil War. Our final segment this episode, TLDL, Too Long, Didn't Listen. I'm going to ask you some questions. Give me some short responses. Who did you like more? Burt Lancaster or Christopher Walken? Burt Lancaster. Better romance story. The indentured barmaid in the Kentuckian or the indentured English companion in Shoot the Sun Down? Barmaid. What was a bigger non-surprise? The two shooters showing up to settle the blood feud or the scalp hunter and the captain turning on the Indians? The scalp hunter and the boat captain. What's sadder, when Big Eli is called a liar by his son, or when Rainbow realizes that his rescue plan has literally backfired? Big Eli being a liar. What political backdrop did you like more, a Kentucky town in the 1820s or Santa Fe in the 1830s? Ooh, hmm. Probably Santa Fe. Which movie had longer stretches of quote-unquote nothing happening? I'm going to say Shoot the Sun Down. And finally, what felt more shoehorned? The fact that a school teacher is instantly attracted to a half-literate woodsman, or how quickly Christopher Walken became friends with the Indian that speaks English? School teacher. Do you have any final words? The Kentuckian's not that bad after all. <laughs> it's not a good western but it is a good movie overall so this whole time was it like you're on the fence and in some way i was convincing you about it i think so yeah <laughs> and yeah you watch these movies for the podcast just as far as your enjoyment of the films did you get enough entertainment from them that if it wasn't the podcast, it would still be a requisite amount of fun? Or in your mind, are you like, damn it, Frank, these movies weren't worth my time? That's how I kind of feel about Shoot the Sun Down. It just didn't really appeal to me as well, unfortunately. But you did finish it, and I do appreciate it. I'll always give everything a shot. 